I just want to welcome everybody that is here to the first ever PropMoto subscribers-only conference call. I'm really excited today to be uh, chatting a little more with uh, Mr. Andrew Ackerman. He's from Dream Adventures. Uh, thanks for joining me, Andrew. My pleasure. Great. So just to give everybody a little background to this, Andrew is the managing director at uh, DreamIt Urban Tech, which is a really uh, innovative and interesting uh, VC and investment firm in the built space. Uh, he also penned an article for us a little while ago um, about uh, why he hates your market size slide, uh, which did quite well and we got a lot of interest from. So we thought we'd uh, have him back on and chat and get a little bit uh, more in-depth about uh, what exactly he hates about market size and uh, just, uh, you know, about the, the built environment in general. So, yeah, thank you again, Andrew. And uh, I guess uh, if you could kind of give us a quick overview of uh, what you do at DreamIt and uh, what, what DreamIt's all about. Sure, happy to. Uh, so I'm a managing director at DreamIt. Uh, for those of you who aren't aware, DreamIt is a venture fund and an accelerator. We focus on pre-Series A startups so a little further along than uh, what you might think of when you think of an accelerator. In fact, what you might think of DreamIt, given what we did for the first eight years of our existence. Uh, a lot about the program has changed. The most important things are for this call in particular is that later stage focus and that we now focus on three verticals, uh, health tech, secure tech, and the vertical that I run, urban tech, which includes uh, construction, real estate, prop tech, uh, and parts of smart city that, that don't suck, you know, the parts that you don't have to go to the government for money for. Um, so what we do in very, very brief is that we work with companies. We don't ask for a lot of equity up front. We just work with them for the right to invest in their next round, typically in a round. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating what you guys are doing. I, I, I don't know if you've coined the term, but I think that you guys are one of the only companies or investors using that urban tech term. Uh, but I like it because it does kind of encompass a little more than um, is not just prop tech. It's not just construction tech. It also kind of has the smart city component. So I think it uh, is a really interesting part about what you guys are doing and kind of uh, makes your, your operation very unique. So we will be, we'll be using you. that more. Yeah. I just wanted to we, kind uh, of get in. We purposely in, use um, the word... So I was going to say we purposely used the word because we couldn't find one that was broad enough to cover all the segments that we liked, uh, and we'd rather have people come to us and say, wait, what is urban tech? Than <laughs> risk missing great startups in, in construction because we called it real estate or vice versa. Yeah, some things are tangential to real estate or construction, but, uh, you know, affects them nonetheless. You know, I'm thinking particularly about uh, some of the mobility startups, you know, Bird and Lime. Mm -hmm. You know, I, you would definitely not call them prop tech, but uh, they affect the built world in such a space that, yeah, I think you're right. It, it's important to uh, kind of bring them into the conversation as well. So, so yeah, so when we start off, I kind of want to get um, a little bit deeper into what you wrote about, um, you know, your kind of disagreement with the way that a lot of companies that you see that uh, the, the way they value their market. Obviously, this is a big part for um, not only investors, but uh, companies as well is to understand what, what the size of their market is. And you know, your argument was that, you know, sometimes that these companies kind of take this pie-in-the-sky approach um, that, that is really kind of disingenuous because 
they're not actually looking at the size of the product for their market. They're looking for kind of a larger, uh, uh, you know, the larger uh, uh, landscape, and and you know, their their market, their product might only be a little piece of that. So maybe you could just uh, tell me a little bit about, you know, how, how you kind of uh, filter through the bullshit, for lack of a better word, of, uh, of understanding what, what the sizes actually are compared to uh, what companies kind of pitch you. Sure, sure, with pleasure. Um, yeah, I should, I should be real clear. I don't think that the startups are intentionally attempting to inflate their market size. I, I think there's been a lot of confusion over what really people want on that slide, and there's a lot of bad advice out there. Uh, so I guess I could start by saying philosophically, the whole point of your pitch deck is to get across as clearly and concisely as possible the things that make your startup as a business awesome and investable. And one of the most important things there is to show the investor that you've got a very large market, typically a billion dollars is the over-under we're looking for. Uh, and really, each slide in your deck, in a specific your market size, should be talking about one thing and one thing only. And in this case, you should be talking about your market size, which I define as everyone out there who could be your customer for the products that you sell, if they all bought it, how much money would you make? Right? I'm not asking for what percentage of the market you think you're going to get. I'm not asking about total spending in that category. All I really care about is if every possible customer buys your product, what did that come out to be? So really, at the end of the day, it's a very simple equation. It's fourth grade math. It's what do you plan to charge times how many customers are there? Uh, there's a lot of wrinkles to it, but not as many as people think. Uh, for instance, uh, and this is the angle you were coming at, uh, people might say, you know, hey, the U.S. automotive industry is you know, X trillion dollars. And then I come back to them and I go, but yeah, but you're selling cup holders, right? So I don't care about what they spend on tires. I don't care about what they spend on steel. It's really all that matters is how much does that cup holder cost times how many cars are made in the U.S. in a given year, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, again, I don't think they're intentionally trying to inflate their market, but if uh, they were to come to me and say, okay, the, uh, the U.S. construction industry is a $58 trillion, I think that's just the commercial side. I could be wrong. Uh, the $8 trillion business, um, I think that's great. But, like, are you selling concrete? Are you hiring subcontractors? No. Let's talk about the software that you want to sell to uh, a large GC. You know, let's, let's talk about what your market actually is, not you know, everything that's spent in and around it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to your point, uh, you know, some of the interest we've gotten from this is from uh, companies that aren't particularly even maybe pitching to VCs, you know, they're actually kind of using your experience in uh, understanding this to, I think, understand their market better because this is an important piece, not, not only if you are uh, trying to get investment, but also if you're building a company, right? You want to know what your, what your end game is, right? Where, where you can take this company. And so I think that it is important to have a good understanding of, you know, a, a good truthful understanding of, of what the actual, um, yeah, growth potential is for a company. So I think that uh, that you definitely right. make some great points in your article. And, you know, we've gotten some questions uh, that, that, that have to do with, you know, obviously because you see so many of these pitches, 
you know, is this something where you want them to come back and, and drill this down harder, or, or do you kind of see that as a red flag and, and maybe pass on a company because they might um, not have a kind of good idea of what, what their so total market is? I wouldn't pass on a company just because they did this wrong. Uh, I might ask for clarification. Now, the, the hesitation in my voice is that, and I've, I've been doing this long enough, that for many types of products, I have a pretty good idea what the market size is anyway. Uh, so it's not that huge a deal. Uh, and I also have a little bit more patience maybe than, than some investors, though I guess a lot of people would argue otherwise. Um, you know, if I like everything else about it, I will ask for clarification. So I won't out and out just ding the startup because they didn't concisely and clearly or correctly calculate the market size. But if once we've gone through that conversation and have calculated the market size in what is, to my opinion, correct, if it's too small, then I will pass because at the end of the day, uh, I need not only a, a good business, but I need an investable business. So you might have a startup if, if you're a founder. Uh, I would argue you want to go through the same exercise and use the same methodology to understand what your market potential is. If you come up with a business that has, say, a $400 million market size, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad business for you. If you can conquer that in a you know, reasonable period of time with you know, not that much outside investment, it could be a great exit for you personally. It just may not be the kind of business that a VC invests in. Sure. And, you know, that, that leads me to another question that uh, that had come in. Um, I want to take this time to remind everyone that if you have questions on the call, feel free to email me right now. It's uh, franco at propmoto.com. That's F-R-A-N-C-O at propmoto.com. And I'd be happy to ask Andrew. But, you know, another question that came in is, you know, do you pass on companies because you don't like their deck? I mean, is this uh, kind of a make-or-break thing, or will you kind of look past Maybe a, a you know a hokey or a little bit unprofessional deck um, if you, if you really like the company. Uh, you know, I have a pretty high tolerance for works in progress. Uh, you know, for many years we were doing working with pre-seed companies, getting them ready to do a seed round, and I pretty much assumed their deck was going to be crap, uh, and that's what we were there to help them with. Uh, you know, we're still dealing with relatively early companies. Just because you raise the seed round. In many cases, it doesn't mean you've, you know, you've kind of nailed the deck. Uh, and there are a lot of companies that will succeed to raise a seed round despite having a deck that's not perfect or even far from perfect. Uh, so I, I have a pretty high tolerance for that. I wouldn't pass on a company just because uh, you know, the deck wasn't tight, uh, especially if I'm going to work with them for several months. So if there's potential there and, and the market's there, uh, and the product is unique and the team is really great, I can fix it back. Right? That's not a big deal for me. Uh, where it rises to the point of, like, I'm going to pass on this, is if the deck is so utterly awful uh, and it shows that they didn't put any work into it. So uh, it, you know, the typos everywhere, it's poorly formatted. Uh, you know, it, it just looks like, they slapped something together and didn't really, you know, spend a lot of time on it. Uh, absent extenuating circumstances, that tells me something about the founder's mindset and that uh, he or she doesn't really understand 
how important this material is uh, and doesn't put the right amount of time into it. And if they're not doing that for an investor deck, I can only wonder what their marketing material or their customer pitch is going to be like. So then it becomes kind of an indirect indicator uh, for other things about the company. But if it's, uh, yeah. you know, if it's a deck that's not perfect and it's clear that they, they tried and there's potential there, like I said, I have a high tolerance for that. I can fix that. I could certainly see that being a, a red flag. Yeah, it's creating technology uh, and marketing it is hard. And if you can't at least put a cohesive deck together, then, yeah, that casts doubts on whether you'll be able to uh, do do the rest of the work necessary to succeed. So, um, you know, I have a, a question just come in um, about your work uh, in, with Water Street in Tampa. Um, you know, first maybe you could kind of give everybody a brief introduction into uh, your collaboration there, and then we can dive in a little bit, a little bit more. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with it. Water Street Tampa is a $3 billion urban renovation project uh, down in the local places, Tampa. Uh, no surprise there. It's spearheaded by a gentleman by the name of Jeff Vinnick. Uh, he was a, a mutual fund manager for many, many years and a hedge fund manager made a lot of money, moved to Tampa, loved the town, saw a huge potential in a largely undeveloped waterfront area and ended up buying up 50-plus acres. Uh, and he's brought in the best general contractors, the best architects, the best developers to help you know, build out what is really one of the largest, uh, and the second or third largest uh, development project in uh, in this country or in North America as a whole, the first being Hudson Yards, uh, of course. Uh, Jeff Finnick is, and he's announced this publicly in Best True and Dream It, otherwise I wouldn't say it, but he's announced it publicly. Uh, and he became an investor in Dreamit after we started working together with him on the urban tech companies. Uh, and in addition to just running the program, also bringing the companies down through Tampa for part of the program so they could get to know strategic property managers, the master developer for this project, and a bunch of the other players uh, involved in Water Street Tampa, uh, both as a way to bring innovation to Tampa and as a way to make sure that he had really cutting-edge, uh, you know, options for what he was building down there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, walk me through that process. Uh, do you kind of just bring, uh, you know, does he does he dictate or do they dictate what they're looking for and you kind of curate some startups or do you kind of just um, bring startups in mass down there and, and let them filter through it? I mean, No, I no, really neither of those. Yeah. yeah. So uh, this is not a, a Techstars-like program where we have a single sponsor and uh, you know you can only work with one company and, and they have kind of control over who comes into the program or not. Uh, you know, from the beginning, this and the other programs within Dreamit are always you know, we'll fund first, so we won't take any companies that we don't uh, at least potentially want to invest in. But otherwise, it just doesn't do it for us. What's more is we, we are not. Uh, strategic Property Partners itself is not a sponsor. Uh, the involvement is directly with with, um, with Jeff at this point. Uh, but as an investor in the fund, not only in Urban Tech, but also in you know, all the, the verticals that we do. Uh, so really what we do first and foremost is we find great companies who are at the right stage that are solving the right problems. Uh, we have a partner network 
uh, of, I think, about 35 companies at this point, uh, ranging everywhere from architects to general contractors to developers to property managers, et cetera. Uh, none of them pass. Right? These are partners that we work with who are specifically looking for startups that solve their problems. We take into account all the needs that they've told us. You know, if uh, you know, developers like Silverstein and uh, Campbell Creek and Reading come to us and say, listen, we're looking for a startup that can do X, Y, Z, we haven't found them, what we like in the market, then that's great data for me. When I go out there and I look for startups, it means that there's an event need. I'm looking for you know, a couple of different types of startups that have been requested by you know, more than one very large partner of ours. Uh, but there's no guarantee that we find them. We don't guarantee any of our partners that we'll bring them you know, exactly what they're looking for, only that it's the input that we need that tells us what the market wants. Uh, and in return, what we'll do is for two weeks in the middle of the program, we have what we call uh, customer immersions, which are formal kind of sit down around a conference room table with you know, two or three key decision makers at our customer partners, usually C-level people, if not you know, the CEO, then it's the chief innovation officer or chief digital officer or the equivalent, a couple of other uh, business line leaders, where the startups that we bring them get to present and they get to drill on the questions to see if these are the kind of startups they want to work with. And it's been uh, phenomenally successful at cutting the kind of typical enterprise sales cycle of nine to 12 months down, you know, in half. Uh, so it's been a, it is a, um, a very effective format for bringing startups and corporates together. But just to be clear, it's something that we do with all of our partners. Uh, strategic property partners in, in Water Street Tampa happens to be a very big example of it because they have such a big project going on but it's not a, um, you know, this is not a bespoke uh, custom program specifically for them. So you, you kind of have the same arrangement with, uh, with other, other partners as well? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we are very, very close to strategic property partners because of the scale of what they're doing. But, uh, you know, they are one of our partners among many. Yeah, and, you know, earlier you'd kind of talked about the smart city component of your investing and, you know, had kind of said that the governmental side is uh, a hard thing to bring into the fold, but I'm just wondering if you do have some government participation in Tampa. You know, I know, um, you know, I know Jeff Vinnick, uh, he owns the Tampa Bay Lightning and he's probably, you know, he's a very well-known person in the area. I'm sure he has some good connections. I mean, do you have some uh, governmental partners uh, in, in that city as well. So, yeah, we do. Uh, and, as, you know, ironically, we also have done customer versions with the Amelie Arena, which is where the Lightning play, because uh, many of their needs kind of mirror what different property managers need as well. Uh, so we do have good relationships with the Department of Transportation down in Tampa, uh, and we have brought, we've done customer immersions with them. We've brought a number of, of startups to them over the years. Uh, my main concern with GovTech isn't that I just don't like working with government, I and mean, that that's not it per se. It's that it just takes a long time, a really long time. Like corporate sales are, are long enough. Government sales are much, much longer. Uh, and due to 
you know, different procurement uh, regulations, which vary from a lot by state to state and city to city, city it's often hard for a startup to work with government uh, and can be a little more established. So I find that uh, you know, the right time for a lot of our companies to consider working with government, if they have a product that works both in the private and public sector, is usually a little later on, usually after they've raised an A or a B round. Uh, and they have both the history to be uh, palatable to a risk-averse government entity, as well as the you know, financial wherewithal to live through uh, a much longer procurement process. Now, that all said, if we get a startup that can come to us and can show us that they have a sales cycle that is equivalent to corporate sales, even though they sell the government, I'd look at them. Right? I, the bar would just be a little higher. They'd have to prove to me that you know, they, can, you know, they can replicate that and they can sell at the same pace or better than uh, the other startups. Uh, to your question, so going you know, some relationships with the city of Tampa, it's, you know, it's just out of need. It's different focus. Not yeah, primary, yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously government tech has has a lot of problems, but and it kind of brings me back to uh, your article about uh, uh, pitch decks. You know, do you see a lot of people misrepresenting, you know, possibly their 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 future sales or their profitability because they underestimate the amount of time it will take to uh, negotiate these kinds of of sales, these enterprise sales or even government sales. Um, I would never use the word misrepresenting because it's you know that that implies that they're trying to pull one over. Um, I do see a lot of entrepreneurs, especially first-time entrepreneurs, uh, who are overly uh, optimistic about how close they are, uh, you know, making a sale. So when I see a uh, like a traction slide, for instance, and they start talking about their pipeline, my my you know. My first instinct is to kind of smile and say, that's cute, let's take that out, because that doesn't mean anything. Uh, <laughs> no, pipeline is hope. Uh, occasionally, I'm wrong. Right? So occasionally, I'll drill deeper, especially now that we work with more mature startups. I've got a lot of companies, you know, these are founders on their second, third, fourth startup. You know, many of them have multiple exits already and deep ties in the industry. So they have one company that can show in the pipeline, and I'm like, I don't know, man. And he's like, well, in my last company, I knew the CPOs firsthand. I'm still friends with every single one of the logos on this page. And we've had at least three conversations with everybody we've listed here. All right? So I said, okay, this guy's done enterprise sales for, to be honest, longer than I have. He has those relationships. There are discussions in progress. In his case, we can leave it on because you know, if he is asked that question, then it moves into territory that's really great. Right, the investor goes, well, what do you mean by the pipeline? And then he can go to an appendix slide with all the people, show him how many meetings he's got. And he can say, by the way, this guy, in my last startup, I would sell $100,000 deals to, and this guy, $200,000 deals. Uh, so it becomes a way, kind of subtle, to show the strength of the team and to show also the pipeline actually matters. But for most founders, especially if it's the first go-around, uh, you know, they may think they're just, you know, weeks away, days away from signing a large enterprise contract where, you know, I, I know because I talked to people on the other side of the table, like they're months away from making a commitment. Uh, but it's not misrepresentation. It's just, you know, they just don't know enterprise sales as well and they don't know any better. Uh, but again, that's mm -hmm. something with 
you know, a little bit of education, it's fixable. So, uh, you know, I, I go in when I see these things, I have like an appropriate level of skepticism, uh, but it's like, hey, let me probe a little deeper skepticism, not like, you know, hey, you're lying to me, you know, three strikes automatic out. Yeah, I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head. It's kind of a, a case of maybe naive optimism. Although I do wonder sometimes if uh, VCs, I think the kind of thinking in the tech community is that, you know, they, they need to be uh, these kind of uh, transformational technologies. They need to have these uh, kind of big world-changing ideas in order to really gain attention. So I guess I'm wondering, you know, from your standpoint, do you like to see uh, companies that, you know, we're, we're going to be the next big thing, we're going to be the next unicorn, or would you rather them just be um, a little more honest about where their company and their technology stands in the whole ecosystem? Well, I, I would like both. I'd like them to honestly be the next big thing. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, like, sorry, it's a little flip, but let me, let me unpack it, right? Uh, marginal improvements or incremental improvements don't win. I'm sure there are exceptions. There's number one exception here, one exception there. But by and large, you have to be a quantum level better than what's out there now to get people to change what they're doing, right? Hey, you know, I got something, it works for me, it's not perfect, but I don't know you, I don't know if you're going to work any better. Eh, it's not worth it, right? You're going to save me 2%? Eh, there's too much risk for that. But if you're like, wow, this is a problem that's been frequent and painful for me for a long time, and I hate what I'm doing now, and you can just get rid of all that pain in one shot, or, hey, you mean you can save me 30%? Heck, I'll pilot that. Right, so it's, it's you can think of it in a weird sort of way. It's like the coefficient of friction. Right, you can move something along. Once it's moving, it moves pretty smoothly. But to get it started, you have to overcome that friction. And to do that, you have to be much better, like much much better than what they have now. For a little bit, you're just not going to move it at all. Uh, so you do need to be that much better, and you need to be, uh, you know, I don't know changing the world with a better, you know, I don't know, building information model. Like, I don't know, there's a lot of hype out there, and there's a lot of people who say things because they think it sounds cool, but really it's just confusing or, or um, you know, a long-winded way of something, saying something quite simple. But for me, changing the world means being a quantum level better than whatever your customer is dealing with now. Uh, it doesn't have to be sexy. That most of what we do in, in construction and real estate tech is not sexy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my kids think it's the most boring thing ever, but that's fine, right? You know, my customers think it's awesome, and that's really what makes a great investable company. Yeah, I've heard a, I've heard some investors. I can't remember who coined the term, but I've definitely heard it a lot. Is you know they look for kind of pants on fire problems because those are ones that you know there's going to be that initial push to overcome that coefficient of friction that you talked about, right? Those small, small gains and little problems are often um, hard to, to change the behavior of. So I definitely appreciate it. Yeah. That. So if you don't know who told you that, I'll, I'll take credit for it. <laughs> okay. Let's, let's go ahead and, uh, uh, no, on the record. No, I mean, I, the analogy 
Uh, so the analogy that we use, and I'll credit Steve Barsh, one of our managing partners, uh, the acid test is, you know, like let's say you went to a kid and, you know, uh, and said, hey, um, I'm going to take yourself, your, your smartphone away forever. They would say some variation of, no, Dad, you will pry my cold, dead hands off this, right? If you have that kind of product, that's how you know you got something. It has to be like the second your customers tasted it, they will not live without it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great piece of advice for, for anybody building uh, anything, if they're going to get investment or not, you know, is to, to look for those kind of problems. So, you know, we're approaching the end of the half an hour, and I, I know that you've, uh, you know, you're a busy guy, and I really appreciate your time. But I do have one question that I'd like to ask you before uh, I let you go, you know. Obviously, I get a lot of uh, everybody likes to talk about the things that they do right and, um, you know, everything that they have seen correctly. And I was wondering if you could maybe give us an example of uh, either a technology or a company that, you know, you thought maybe didn't have a lot of legs that, that you got proved wrong and, and why you think that you had an error in, in your judgment. <laughs> um, yeah, there are a lot, of, uh, a lot of mistakes I've made that way. Um, so here, here's the thing, don't, you know, for, for people out there, I, I, I don't beat myself up over them and I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't beat yourself up if you're in that position either because, you know, sometimes it's the right bet and it just turns out the wrong way. So there are companies out there that, um, I've passed on that haven't gone on to succeed. Uh, my past was that I thought the odds of success were below the threshold that I was willing to play in. And if they beat those odds, uh, you know, because of things I didn't know about or just because they got lucky, then that doesn't mean my decision was wrong. Uh, if they succeeded because of things that I should have been able to figure out, uh, but I just didn't see it, then shame on me, then, okay, that's a pretty expensive lesson, but I've learned it. Um, you know, specific companies that I passed on, uh, I passed on the opportunity to get into ZocDoc, um, and, and I think I passed for the wrong reason. Uh, so ZocDoc, for those who aren't aware of it, aware of it is, is a way for you know, doctors basically to get more patients, so patients come on, find a doctor, and book it online. I'm, I'm doing gross injustice to what they do, but that's the quickest version of it. Um, so I did what most reasonable investors do when they come up with a very different business model. And I talked to a lot of doctors, uh, and I said, hey, would you use something like this? And they almost all said no. Uh, so I figured, okay, this isn't going to work. It, the customers aren't into it, so let's pass. Uh, the mistake I made was that not all doctors are the same. The doctors I was talking to, as it turned out, in retrospect, tended to be more established doctors who already had customer bases or uh, you know, patient bases. Uh, the new doctors who are just getting out there and who are just looking to build business, uh, for them, something like ZocDoc was very attractive. Uh, and it became the kind of thing that once they started using, they stuck with. And the market kind of grew from there. This is my understanding of how they succeeded. You know, if you ask for that as a doctor, they may disagree. Uh, but I missed that. Right? I treated all potential customers the same, and I didn't realize that. Uh, your initial wedge base, your go-to-market, may be different than your total market. And this goes back, actually, to the article, right? Um, a lot of people play around with 
TAM, total addressable market, and then SAM and SOM, you know, serviceable addressable market and all that jazz. You know, it's not that complicated. It's just one number for your market. But what some of them are getting at when they try to calculate their SAM or their serviceable addressable market, I think, is what they're trying to say is this is my initial base. I have all these customers. That's my market. But the first one, the early adopters are going to be these people. Uh, and that's valuable information. It just doesn't belong on your market size. It belongs on your go-to-market slide. Um, and where I screwed up with ZocDoc was I didn't distinguish between their total addressable market and you know whether their go-to-market would make sense. Um, mm-hmm. So my passing on that uh, was not right decision. just turned out to be wrong outcome. It was probably the wrong decision, even given what I knew at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I appreciate you uh, being candid about it. I think that's a really fascinating and, and a great point, right? Anytime people speak in kind of broad generalizations, you know, a market is this or that, it's like, well, if you're looking at a large market, you know, there's a good chance that you can cut it up a bunch of ways, right? They're not just one person that all kind of, you know, walks and makes decisions in lockstep. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think uh, things things are infinitely complicated if you keep looking deeper and deeper. So it's important for... I think everybody to yeah. understand that when either building a business or, or investing in one. So, yeah. And I'm happy to talk about why I hate people's go-to-market slides separately, but that's not the article I wrote, so we won't talk about it now. <laughs> well, hopefully you can uh, you can write another one for us because, like I said, we got a lot of really great interest in this, and I think it's been a, a really fascinating discussion talking a little bit deeper about your ideas and what you guys have been doing. Hopefully, um, yeah, we hear a lot more great things from you in the future. And I just really want to thank you for coming on and giving us a little education on on market slides and uh, bringing innovation into the built world. And I want to thank everybody out there for listening and our, their support. So we'll go ahead and end the conversation here. And, um, yeah, hopefully we can have another one of these with you soon, Andrew. Thanks. Thanks again. With pleasure. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. Bye, everybody.